Welcome to Night Night Bitch. I'm your host, Molly, your guide to awe-inspiring texts read by me or in the voices of their original creators. Please know I don't own any of this content. It's all freely accessible online and duly cited in my episode descriptions for your reference. This podcast is a creative outlet for me, so I don't update it as regularly. But if you'd like to subscribe to my other podcast, Back From The Borderline, I release two thought-provoking episodes each week. And now, let's dive into the episode. Welcome. It's time to rest your weary mind, unwind, escape the matrix, and explore the arcane. We live in a culture that is rapidly losing its grasp on myth and meaning. Exploration of philosophy, depth psychology, esotericism, the occult, myth, and mysticism have been proven to inspire awe. Such experiences of daily awe have been shown to be psychologically beneficial and aid in the potential expansion of consciousness. Each time we're here together, I'll select a reading, article, or sample audio that could increase your opportunity for such experiences. While you listen, you might fall asleep. You might wake up. You might do both. Maybe finding the perfect balance between awake and dreaming is exactly what you always needed. Night night bitch. This is the exercise for your own development process designed by you. You should be hearing my voice in your right ear. Remember the purpose, your purpose for this exercise. And begin your pre-preparation process now. The affirmation beginning, I am more than my physical body. Welcome to American Alchemy, Part 2. If you haven't yet done so, this series will make more sense listened to in chronological order. To start from the beginning, go back and listen to American Alchemy, Part 1. The purpose of this series is to academically explore the origins of the United States and how although alchemy, esotericism, and occultism is viewed as demonic. Many of the founding fathers of this country were self-proclaimed alchemists. So let's continue our exploration. And it starts with the second chapter, The Alchemical Governor of Connecticut. For John Winthrop Jr.'s funeral, American poet Ben Thompson wrote a poem that has much more to do with alchemy than puritanism. The poem reads, Projections various by fire he made, Where nature and her common treasure laid. Some thought the tincture philosophic lay, 
hatched by the mineral sun in Winthrop's way, and clear it shines to me he had a stone, graved with his name, which he could read alone. His fruits of toil hermetically done, stream to the poor as light doth from the sun. The lavish garb of silks, rich plush and rings, physician's livery, at his feet he flings. John Winthrop Jr. is another important American born on February 12th. He was not only the most popular alchemical physician in colonial America, he was also the first governor of Connecticut and a charter member of the Royal Society. An avid astronomer, his three and a half foot refractor was one of the first telescopes in America. The son of the three-time governor and founder of Massachusetts Bay Colony, he tried several times in his life to reach the Rosicrucians and he patterned his life after their example. Winthrop first encountered alchemy and the Rosicrucians when he went to school in London in 1624 after just turning 18. Within months, he and his roommate and lifelong friend Howes were skipping classes to conduct alchemical experiments and searching for Rosicrucians. Winthrop was so inspired by the example of Christian Rosenkreutz that he tried to use his family connections to imitate the founder of the Rosicrucian order by traveling to Turkey in search of alchemical wisdom. Any well-educated European knew that the teaching of alchemy had been preserved and developed by the Arabs. From them came the copies of alchemical classics long forgotten in Europe. But the Arab view of alchemy was thought to be somehow tainted by Islam, which was not the pure truth of Christianity. Unable to find passage to Turkey in 1627, Winthrop took a position as captain's secretary on a ship in the fleet England sent to relieve the siege of the Huguenot fortress La Rochelle. Winthrop hoped that after the battle he might find a boat headed for Turkey. Instead, he witnessed the humiliating defeat that left half the English fleet burning, an experience that may explain why as governor he never considered war an appropriate policy. And whenever the king asked him to send soldiers to war, Winthrop would praise the cause and urge his fellow colonial leaders to send troops, while finding numerous valid reasons why his own men could not be in attendance. But Winthrop's trip to La Rochelle wasn't a total loss. He met Cornelius Drebel, an alchemist, physician, and inventor who had been a court favorite of Henry, Prince of Wales, for having built a camera obscura a device that projects its surroundings on a screen, early microscopes, and a submarine that was successfully tested in the Thames River. Drebel mentored Winthrop and left a fond impression on him. On the flyleaf of a copy of Basil Valentine's alchemical classic of natural and supernatural things, Winthrop wrote, quote, This was once the book of that famous philosopher and naturalist, Cornell Drebel. He usually carried this with him in his pocket and after his death was given me by his son-in-law." In the summer of 1628, Winthrop took a ship to Leghorn Pisa, Florence, and finally to Constantinople. Unsatisfied, he planned to travel to Jerusalem further east as Christian Rosenkreutz had done, but rumors of war were everywhere. 
On the return voyage home the following year in Venice, Italy, Winthrop met a Dutch scholar returning from a tour of Turkey where he acquired a rare Arabic and Persian manuscripts. Two weeks after his son's return to London, Winthrop Sr. became leader of the Puritans who would colonize New England. Winthrop helped his father sell off their property. He married, but also found time for alchemical experimentation. Winthrop had become fascinated with John Dee, whom many have credited as being one of the principal inspirations to the Rosicrucian counterculture. Winthrop began collecting books and manuscripts that had belonged to Dee. Winthrop adopted Dee's Monus Hieroglyphica as a personal insignia, drawing it next to his own signature in alchemical texts and using it to mark crates of instruments and chemicals headed for America. It's an extraordinary image, the symbol invented by John Dee, Queen Elizabeth's court astrologer, to represent the reformation of the world. An inspiration to the Rosicrucians often seen in their books was the emblem painted on boxes of alchemical supplies imported by the son of the founder of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, like Led Zeppelin's mysterious sigils on their anvil cases. In November 1631, cannons and muskets saluted Winthrop's arrival in the New World with his bride. Woodward summarizes the accomplishments that followed, quote, Over the next half century, Winthrop would found three colonial towns, serve as Bay Colony assistant for nearly two decades, govern the colony of Connecticut for 18 years, secure that colony a charter from the Restoration Court of Charles II, granting it virtual independence, found several New England iron foundries, serve as physician to nearly half the population of Connecticut, and becoming a founding member of the Royal Society. Alchemical knowledge and philosophies factored often essentially into each of these accomplishments, end quote. This is a sidebar for me here. Our country in the United States was founded on alchemical knowledge much of the same knowledge that people were burned at the stake for. This is something to keep in mind. As soon as he arrived, Winthrop set up an alchemical laboratory in his father's house. There was nothing wrong with practicing alchemy in an elite Puritan household. Winthrop assisted his father and others governing Massachusetts Bay Colony. He flourished, but his wife did not. Returning to London in 1634 after her death, he and his college roommates, Howes, were eager to meet John Everard, a minister and alchemist, a friend of Robert Flood, and the rumored leading candidate for an actual Rosicrucian. In 1650, Everard would be the first to translate into English the pagan classic, The Divine Pymander of Hermes Mercurius Trismegistus. But Everard answered Winthrop's questions with poetic generalizations. Winthrop and Howes were unimpressed. Winthrop returned to Europe in 1641 to raise money for an ironworks in New England, arriving at the same time as Cominius, who did impress him when they met. The great educator and philosopher was celebrated for going beyond the utopias of Bacon and Campanella, New Atlantis, and City of the Sun, were lovely myths but impractical guides to real-world challenges. Cornelius synthesized the idea of universal reformation into some practical suggestions. First, 
He wanted to establish universal education for men and women. Not everyone would become a scholar, but everyone would know how to write and do math. Today, it's hard to imagine how radical that idea was in the 17th century, especially the education of all women and the natives of America and Africa. Second, Cornelius proposed that books be compiled that would contain all the information anyone could need. Quote, the condensed essence of all knowledge, quote, must be given to everyone. Three books would be written collaboratively. Pan Sophia, or All Wisdom, would reveal the metaphysics of the structure of the soul and the world as designed by deity. Pan Historia, or All History, would show how all of this unfolds in the specific arts and sciences, in all crafts and other aspects of life. And Pan Dogmatica, All Dogma, the collection of theories about human life and activity and whether they proved to be true or false. Third, a universal language must be collaboratively created. And finally, from all the nations across the globe, the best minds must collaborate for the betterment of the world, their organization to be known as the College of Light, where a new generation of innovators would be educated. While none of these suggestions were ever realized, they did inspire cooperation and faith in science. Ironically, all this rational thinking was based on the idea that the end of the world was near. These great intellects of their day were haunted by the fear of imminent doom, though they had no nuclear weapons, no climate crisis. But they also believed that just before the end times, there would be a great quickening of knowledge. The descendants of Adam would regain the lost knowledge of paradise just before Jesus returned. Everything would be known and everything understood by everyone. They hoped that by contributing to the process, they were bringing the world closer to the second coming of Christ. Winthrop left England for Hamburg, The Hague, and Amsterdam, meeting not only with potential investors in the ironworks, but with the alchemists and philosophers. He was also collecting books and manuscripts. The first of his many attempts to desalinate seawater was already in operation, but back then, the salt making was more important than the fresh water left behind. By the fall of 1644, he had the ironworks up and running and was ready to move on to a new venture, mining silver. By 1646, Winthrop was working on the beginnings of what would become New London. He bought seeds from colonial farmers who had shown luck growing English grasses in America. He ordered trees for his orchard, winter wheat, indigo seeds, and livestock. And most importantly, Winthrop was recruiting geniuses for his colonial college of light. If you're familiar with Uncas, the romantic Mohican lead in the feature film Last of the Mohicans, you might be surprised to learn that there really was a Mohican chief named Uncas but he wasn't at all like the Uncas in the movie. Winthrop had his eye on a mountain on Connecticut's frontier where he had found black lead ore. He took the ore with him to England where he got conflicting reports. Important experts declared he'd found a silver mine. One dissenting expert insisted he'd found no more than graphite, but graphite was rare enough to be a worthwhile commercial venture. The problem with the site was that it not only was it outside the jurisdiction of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, but also that it was deep in Native American territory where 1637, the Pequot War broke out. 
The powerful Mohegan tribe, led by their great war chief Uncas, along with their native allies, had joined forces with the English of Connecticut and Massachusetts colonies to crush the once powerful Pequots, who had been weakened by deadly diseases caught from the Europeans. The already dwindling tribe was nearly massacred. Bounties were paid by the English for Pequot heads and hands. The English and the allied tribes divided women and children up. The surviving warriors disappeared into the bands of relatives, sometimes in enemy tribes. 500 Pequots huddled in a settlement were all that was left of the tribe. The commissioners of the United Colonies, two representatives each from the four colonies, ordered that all legal rights and even the name of the Pequot tribe itself be erased. The 500 survivors were now to pay tribute to Uncas and obey him in all things. The Winthrop House received their fair share of the spoils of war. A young Pequot woman was added to their household as a servant. But there had been a mistake. Uncas already had plans for the girl. He wanted to add her to his growing collection of wives. Uncas chose a new chief from the surviving Pequots, an until then unremarkable man with the mellifluous name Robin Cacacinamon. I may be butchering that pronunciation. Since at the order of the commissioners of the United Colonies, all surviving leaders of the Pequot had been executed by the Mohicans, being named a chief must have been a frightening development for Robin. To make matters worse, Uncas ordered him to try to trade with John Winthrop Sr. for the Pequot girl, and if the trade was refused, to volunteer to stay on in service of the Winthrops until he could arrange her escape, which was more dangerous, to succeed at the task he was given or to fail. Either the girl was an indispensable servant or she didn't want to marry Uncas because his generous trade for her was refused by John Sr. So Robin did as he was told and arranged for her escape. Uncas rewarded him with the treasure John Sr. refused. The Winthrops could not have been pleased, but fortunately for him, Robin had become friendly with John Sr. The two men found mutual respect and shared goals. Robin told John Jr. about the inner workings of tribal politics. John supported Robin's goal and survived the Pequot tribe in its liberation from the tender mercies of Uncas. Robin returned to his 500 survivors and Winthrop decided to establish New London, his alchemical plantation right next to the village of survivors. He would plead their cause to the English and natives alike. The natives thought Winthrop was an English chief since they considered his father chief of Boston. Also because his wife and sister-in-law lived with him, along with several wives of colonial dignitaries who had taken ill and were seeking healing, the natives thought Winthrop had many wives, among them a privilege enjoyed only by chiefs. But watching the smoke rising from his laboratory, the sacred smoke that natives believed connected the world of spirit and man, or running long distances carrying messages on behalf of English families begging Winthrop's help to fight disease, or experiencing the healing power of his alchemical recipes for themselves, the natives began to appreciate Winthrop as a shaman. In their culture, to be both chief and shaman was to be a great person indeed. His old friend Howes not only gave Winthrop good advice about dealing with the natives respectfully, he also sent Winthrop some vocabularies of native language that were probably the work of Thomas Harriet. Winthrop treated the tribes not only with tolerance, but with respect for their traditions. 
When he bought land from them, he not only satisfied all requirements of colonial and English law, he also added to the contract a description of the ritual enacted and gave the names of the natives involved. In Winthrop's village, natives and Europeans were living together with mutual concern and a sense of community. When 30 of his warriors were wounded, Uncas was surprised by the arrival of Winthrop, who treated them effectively. Soon after Roger Williams, leader of the Rhode Island colony, wrote Winthrop asking for some of his medicinal powder for his sick daughter. At first, Uncas was thrilled to have such a good doctor nearby, so he gave Winthrop gifts and participated with the other tribes of New England in the establishment of boundaries for the plantation. This must have been an extraordinary time for Winthrop. Inspired by Rosicrucian ambitions, he had gone to the heart of conflict in New England, protected the innocent, and reconciled all tribal factions. In the community he founded, natives and English worked together and lived together peacefully. The gospel was taught by example, not by force. Pythagorean harmony and hermetic peace seemed to emanate all around him, as the colonial leaders and charter members of the Royal Society anxiously awaited news about what he was up to next. It must have seemed possible that Cornelius was right, and here in America was the first appearance of the Society of the Universal Reformation. Problems began when Winthrop made it clear that the Pequots were now part of his plantation and were no longer subject to their chief, Uncas. Uncas did not take kindly to that faux pas. He showed up suddenly with a large force and attacked the Pequots. Bones were broken, cuts were slashed, and men and women, old and young, were stripped naked and thrown into the cold river of September in Connecticut. The English weren't harmed, but their doors were forced open and their native friends who had hoped to hide from them were dragged away. The message was clear. Uncas wanted his 500 tribute pairs back and he wanted Winthrop with the other English to go back home and leave their plantation to the ants and weeds. Winthrop already had a questionable reputation among colonial leaders thanks to his business partner Robert Child's imprisonment for challenging the Puritan authorities. So Winthrop sent a friend to carry a petition on behalf of the people of his settlement to the United Colonies. But the leaders of Connecticut Colony weren't too pleased with Winthrop. Seems he never asked permission to place his alchemical plantation on what they considered their land. Also, he'd violated the property rights, human capital, and land of their proven and loyal ally, Uncas. The United Colonies sided with Connecticut. Uncas apologized for getting a little too close to the English during the excitement of the event. Winthrop was ordered to return the Pequots to the Mohegans, but Winthrop was able to postpone the inevitable for many months just by ignoring the order. In July 1647, Winthrop represented the Pequots in the meeting of the United Colonies. He petitioned for their release from Uncas and for the restoration of their name and status as a legal tribe. He presented a long list of Mohegan bullying that included extortion, intimidation, cutting fishing nets, stealing food, even murdering innocent natives just for the fun of it. The Mohegans also refused to honor their gambling debts. So when asked to gamble by a Mohegan, you were really being singled out for anything from extortion to murder. The 500 surviving Pequots, who had seen their families and friends slaughtered, who were trying to embrace the new culture Winthrop was promising, were caught between two worlds. Again, the commission sided with Uncas. Uncas would pay a fine for the bad behavior of his warriors, a fine he could easily extort from the Pequots when he regained custody of them. He kept the pressure on Winthrop and the Pequots. 
His brother attacked the Nimnuk tribe who had sold the land for a lead mine to Winthrop. They wrecked a canoe at the plantation's fishing outpost and gathered outside the community in a threatening mass before returning to their villages. Offended by Winthrop's disobedience, in September 1648, the commission sent armed Englishmen with Uncas and his Mohegan warriors to the plantation. The leader of the English observes made a formal declaration, and then the Mohegans were set free to rampage through the town, dragging Pequots back to captivity. But the Pequots refused to stay with Uncas. One or a few at a time, they returned to the plantation until January 1649, Uncas returned with the English observers and his warriors. The Pequots were beaten and cut. Their copper pots, furs, and hemp baskets were destroyed or taken, their shelters knocked down, their clothes ripped off their bodies, old and young alike, and their food supplies were stolen. The plantation constable's protests were ignored. They were left shivering and bleeding in the snow. Watching fellow Englishmen stand guard over such cruelty was shocking. As news of the event spread across the colonies, public opinion turned against Ugas and the commission. Three months later, in March 1649, John Winthrop Sr. was gravely ill. He wrote a letter to his son. He thought the commission was wrong, but he wished the constable hadn't tried to interfere. He urged his son to obey the commission. He was worried about his son out there with a recently hostile tribe in the wilderness, disobeying the orders of the commissioners. John Sr. had warned John Jr. of the dangers of too much knowledge. Now here he was doing his crazy experiments in the middle of a battleground, stirring up every hornet's nest in sight. John Sr.'s last request was that John Jr. give up the Pequots, but he didn't leave to see his son's clever solution for what had seemed an impossible predicament. Winthrop found a compromise that everyone could agree to. The Pequot would be given a safe area of their own, belonging neither to the Mohegans or the English. They could walk to work at the plantation and live free of Uncas and his bullying. With public opinion against them this time, the commissioners agreed. Uncas was never able to gain complete control over the Pequots again. In 1653, Winthrop convinced the commission to free the Pequot from the Uncas. Winthrop kept advocating for them until he also won the restoration of their tribal name and legal rights. Why did he fight so hard for the tribe of Native Americans called the Pequot? Was it a matter of pure expedience, as he claimed before the commission when he argued if they were dependent on the English, that they would become an invaluable source of intelligence about the activities and intentions of other tribes? Did he fight for the Pequots because of his friendship with Robin Cassacinamon, who he named governor of the Pequot, and whom he often used in negotiations with other tribes? Was he putting to work his Rosicrucian principles, proving that Comenius was right, that a new age of wisdom was dawning that would unite all races? Or did he simply do what he had to do to make his potential silver mine viable? Perhaps all these were motivations behind his extraordinary protection of the Pequot tribe. It cost him, however. He wouldn't find workers willing to mine silver in such a cold and dangerous area. Supporters back in Europe were less enthusiastic when news of the trouble with the Mohegans reached them. Robert Child went back home to England, and the other alchemists who had promised to join Winthrop's great experiment changed their minds. But Winthrop kept the plantation going. First, he made a business out of raising livestock. Then, with numerous blacksmiths joining him, he began supplying hatchets and hoes for merchants in Hartford. 
In May 1649, Massachusetts gave him 3,000 acres to build a salt works. New London was more than Winthrop's experiment. He was to act as the agent, the reporter, the eyes and ears of the Royal Society of London, who, when he was in London, tutored him to prepare him for the job. For his alchemical project, Winthrop now looked for homegrown talent to replace the reluctant Europeans. In this way, he became the central intelligencer of the American colonies. He encouraged George Starkey and many other students of alchemy he found at Harvard or visiting from Bermuda or newly arrived from England. Robert Child continued to send him recipes from England, recommendations of people and books, and advice about treating the natives respectfully. Local alchemists sent Winthrop questions or asked his opinion of recipes or sources. They wrote to thank him for the rare book he sent them. Humphrey Alderton, who partnered with Winthrop on a new plantation next door, joined Winthrop. Alchemist Gershom Bulkley became the new minister of New London. William White, an alchemist and expert on ironworks who'd moved to Bermuda, returned to New England to work with Winthrop on his alchemical experiments. New London became New England's medical center, the place where sick people went to get better. Quote, whenever he came, Colton Mather wrote of Winthrop, Still, the disease flocked about him, as if the healing angel of Bethesda had appeared, end quote. Patients arrived from all over the colonies, and even from Europe. Winthrop received heartbreaking letters from sick people all over the world who'd heard about his great talents from friends and relatives. Their conditions can be identified from the descriptions of their suffering. Winthrop usually referred them to physicians of their area. He had more than enough work locally. Most of Winthrop's medicines involved preparations of antimony and nitre. One of his own most famous recipes, widely distributed by his sons after his death, was called rubilia. Rubilia was made of four grains of processed antimony, 20 grains of nitre, a dash of salt of tin, and a mysterious ingredient that turned the concoction ruby red. He also prescribed flowers of sulfur, purest gold, blue vitriol, iron burnt alum, oregano, sarsaparilla, raisins, saffron, horseradish, tobacco ointment, nutmeg, mugwort, sage, pearls, ambergris, and the penis of a seahorse. <laughs> nice. Which was used to treat kidney stones. He devised a system of color-coded packets so his medicines could be identified more easily. To distribute them, he organized a network of female healers who dispensed his advice too. Winthrop had learned respect for female healers as a young man in England. His cousin Elizabeth was a skilled surgeon in England who had participated in Winthrop's early alchemical experiments in the 1620s. Okay, this is an interesting sidebar for me, but the witch trials in Salem, Massachusetts happened around 1692 to 1693. And we're reading here about Winthrop, who is organizing this network of female healers who are dispensing alchemical healing methods. And this is all going down in like the 1650s, 1660s. And if we go by history, if the witch trials happened in the 1690s, this means that this is just 40-ish years before the witch trials. And it makes you really, really wonder 
this stuff was perfectly acceptable. This is how our country was founded on these alchemical experimentations. And then women were prosecuted for doing exactly what our founding fathers were teaching them to do and probably what they'd already been doing for thousands of years. Anyway, I digress. In 1650, Winthrop let it be known he was thinking about closing or moving New London, and perhaps even returning to England, but he seems to have been bluffing. Perhaps contemplating life without New London made officials more cooperative. When Winthrop asked to have the boundaries of the project expanded, they were. By 1653, both a gristmill and sawmill were operational. In 1657, without running for office, Winthrop was elected governor of Connecticut. Connecticut was a Puritan colony, part of the new monarchy-free world of Cromwell, but now royalty had been restored. Winthrop's own father-in-law had signed the document ordering the beheading of the new king's royal father. With the least official documentation of all the colonies, Connecticut was ripe for a revenge pluck. With a signature, Charles II could turn it into a royal colony and replace its government with one of its own selection. In the summer of 1661, Winthrop sailed to England. Within months, a new witch hunt broke out in Connecticut. Here we go. I didn't even know about this. I'm reading this at the same time as you all. A year of panic began. Eight witchcraft trials were conducted in eight months. By the time Winthrop returned, three women and one man had died on the gallows. Five had fled Connecticut. So another sidebar for me here. This just goes to show how the Puritan beliefs were clashing with these alchemical practicing founding fathers, right? Winthrop had emboldened groups of women to become healers and practice these alchemical practices, for lack of a better word. And then as soon as England is back in the mix, that's when the panic starts and there are witch trials. So continuing... This was, after all, a culture where newlywed couples whose babies arrived prematurely were punished for premarital intercourse with lashes from a whip if they couldn't afford the fine. So intense was the repression of anger, so stifling the community interest, that, for example, a young Puritan mother, despairing of ever being worthy of being fit for spiritual grace, spurning the constant comfort offered by her betters, threw her newborn down a well, and she announced that at least, quote, now she was sure she would be damned, for she had drowned her child, end quote, as Governor Winthrop of Massachusetts Bay Colony wrote in his journal. Puritan culture was not peaceful and joyful. Anxiety and doubt were considered more appropriate for almost certainly damned. For these Calvinists, the relationship with deity was very conditional, and humans were hardly ever to meet the conditions. As schoolmaster and the American Puritan minister Thomas Shepard wrote in his journal, quote, The greatest part of a Christian's grace lies in mourning for the want of it. End quote. Another sidebar for me, this is when I feel like the Puritan nature was really starting to take hold in America, where the bones of what made it up were the myth of original sin that you are all born dirty born sinners and that the divine was a puritanical authoritarian father god always looking down on you waiting for you to do something wrong and this obviously does not create a very calm 
and psychologically individuated and integrated society. This is going to create and breed a culture full of anxiety, toxic shame, etc. So let's continue. When the new charter received the Great Seal in 1662, Connecticut now included New Haven Colony and much of the territory that had been claimed by Rhode Island. The same year, Winthrop became a member of the Royal Society. The Royal Society today is a purely scientific organization, but in those early years, the writings of Hermes Trismegistus and the Neoplatonists, as well as the alchemists and Rosicrucians, were part of the intellectual climate. While in England, Winthrop was asked to give many presentations about the New England flora and fauna. Winthrop used his new power to release a woman who was sentenced to die on the gallows for witchcraft after repeated prosecutions. In another case, a cunning woman, and by the way, sidebar for me here, cunning woman was the same thing as like a healer or a witch. In another case, a cunning woman skilled at healing was accused of witchcraft, including spectral apparitions of herself with a ghostly black dog, and apparently she was a psychic since many witnesses testified her predictions tended to come true. She was a student of the astrology books of William Lilly, which she had publicly boasted. Her accusers seemed more malicious. They maimed her animals and vandalized her property. The court ignored Winthrop's appeal on her behalf and convicted her. George Bulkley, the young star in Winthrop's stable, handled the next step. He argued that the rule that two witnesses were necessary to convict meant that two people must have seen the same event at the same time. That weakened the case considerably. As for our spectral apparitions, how could the court know if they were not simply the work of the devil and not the alleged witch at all? As for interest in astrology, Bulkley reminded the magistrates that their own favorite doctors, including the esteemed the Winthrop and William Lilly himself, used astrological knowledge for the art of healing. As for divination, it could only be diabolical if the information provided could come from no natural source. To read the stars intelligently and make informed predictions was simply knowledge of nature, like the farmer's ability to predict the seasons based upon natural cycles, not magic. Soon after, Winthrop released the convicted witch and gave her a safe passage out of the colony. In other words, again, me piping in, everything that this woman was doing was exactly the same thing that men were doing of the time, but because she was a woman, she was a cunning woman or a witch, and the men were alchemists or healers. Put that in your back pocket and take what you will. Greater Connecticut didn't last long. One year later, Charles II granted his brother, the Duke of York, a huge grant of land that included New Haven Colony and half of Connecticut. The Dutch were to be kicked off Manhattan as well, and English warships bearing English soldiers were there to enforce the new order. Not only did Winthrop lose his land grant, many of his powerful allies back home lost their positions to loyal royalists. Winthrop formally renounced all claim to Long Island and other territories that had belonged to Connecticut in a public ceremony attended by the agent of the crown. Then he traveled to New Amsterdam to help negotiate the Dutch surrender. New Amsterdam became New York. Sir Robert Moray was the privy counselor behind this new colonial government, and he too was an alchemist. Winthrop was pleasantly surprised to find out that more land than he expected would be under his jurisdiction but the king was maneuvering slowly but surely towards his new charters. First, he would get through a reckoning of the situation and resources in the American colonies. Then, he would establish his own governors. 
the people would no longer elect them. Winthrop kept as much power as he could by finding good reasons why he couldn't comply with certain doctors. In May 1675, Charles ordered Connecticut was to surrender all control to the British crown. A new government would be appointed, and redcoats were in the harbor ready to enforce the command. As Winthrop lay dying in early April the next year, New England was in flames as King Philip's war threatened to wipe out the colonies entirely. Quote, the blaze of towns was up like torches light to guide him to his grave, end quote, eulogized a Boston poet. Forty-four years after the cannon and muskets had saluted his arrival, they marked his departure. Winthrop spent his last days working on plans for the rebuilding of New England and the restoration of old alliances. The genteel world of his alchemical plantation, New London, was disappearing, and a new world was being born that would result almost exactly 100 years later in the establishment of the United States of America around the time Josuinus Erkelins. <laughs> that name is a real head fuck. Around the same time, Justinus Ukerlins brought a mountain near East Haddam, Connecticut, known to the locals as Governor's Ring. The president of Yale College at the time, the Reverend Ezra Stiles, explained it was, quote, the place to which Governor Winthrop of New London used to resort with his servant, and after spending three weeks in the woods of this mountain and roasting ores and assaying metals and casting gold rings, he used to return home to New London with plenty of gold. Hence, this is called the Governor Winthrop's Ring to this day. Walter Woodward suggested for Winthrop and his friends the shorthand term, the Christian alchemists. As he points out, not all were Christian, and the ones who were belonged to various denominations. A Catholic alchemist was included among them. The alchemist of Winthrop's flock, born into the least social status, was Gershom Bulkley who became the son-in-law of Charles Chauncey, alchemist and president of Harvard College. Gershom was born in Massachusetts in 1636. He worked as a pastor and a minister. At a time in life when his peers would have been unwilling to embark on a new career, Gershom followed his love of the Paracelsian medicine into practice as a physician. His healing skills were so in demand that he stepped down from his popular pulpit to pursue medicine full-time. Bulkley put together a large library of alchemical works with books by Paracelsus, Sendivagosius, may have butchered that, including many he hand-copied. Not only did Bulkley's son become an alchemist, so did his daughter, Dorothy. Bulkley drew the line at astrology. The influence of the moon and planetary aspects he dismissed in Go With Me, a book he wrote for his 11-year-old grandson who was considering a future as a doctor. Bulkley scoffs at the rival physician's 30-day prognosis astrological chart, pointing out that it doesn't even take into account differences in the lengths of months. Yet he speculates about certain astral influences more subtle and sublime. Advice about laboratory work is abundant, including the crucial importance of clearly labeling dangerous chemicals and keeping them away from children. <laughs> what a novel concept. Good, good thinking. <laughs> He left his library to his grandson, who grew up to be an alchemist physician and minister himself. Slatterstrom, in his History of Science thesis, Alchemy and Alchemical Knowledge in 17th Century New England, gives us a detailed glimpse into the practice of a skilled 17th century American alchemist. Not one of the elite, but a sincere doctor serving a humble community. 
in Go With Me, Bulkley, quote, spells out his chemical recipes. They are truly voluminous. First, he discusses the preparation of substances such as acids, which play an important role in subsequent recipes. For example, he provides a recipe for aqua fortis, saying that it dissolves all metals but gold and tin, as well as a recipe for aqua regis, which he says dissolves gold and antimony. Herbs and other non-chemical substances do not appear for almost hundreds of pages, and even then only in the context of chemical preparations ordered by recipe type, i.e. organized into pills, powders, and so on. Bulkley consistently shows that he has first-hand knowledge of many of the recipes he relates. For example, of pills made from silver, he states, quote, I have divers times made these pills according to this prescript of Mr. Boyle, and found them excellent but he has since found another way of making them, I think, much better." End quote. His recipe is typical in those in the book, as it involves the alloying and purifying of metals in an aqueous environment. Bulkley instructs the young doctor to dissolve silver in aquafortis and add copper plates. The silver will adhere to the copper. Next, when shaken, the silver will fall to the bottom of the container and more silver will come out of the solution to adhere to the copper. In this manner, one may purify silver for the pills. The flock also included Winthrop's investor and partner Robert Child, who was born in England. He's another of those contradictions we find in Europe and the colonies, an alchemist, wisps of Rosicrucian rumors surrounding him, who appears to also have been a strict Presbyterian. He and Winthrop exchanged many letters containing alchemical information, occult speculation, and lists of books being lent or acquired. For example, Child wrote to Winthrop once, quote, One Vaughn, an ingenious young man, hath written Anthropophosia, end quote. Child had plans for a vineyard to be not only a business investment and an experiment in improving the techniques of agriculture, but also for England's pride, since France should not be the only nation to enjoy praise for winemaking. A man named Elias Ashmole was the great antiquarian of his age. In his diary, Ashmal, which is probably the funniest name I've ever heard, relates tantalizing glimpses of his meetings and correspondences with Rosicrucian apologists and alchemists, as well as Kabbalists, astrologers, members of the inner circle of Francis Bacon, fellows of the Royal Society, and early Freemasons. Most of John Dee's library, including his manuscripts, was in Ashmal's collection. In his Theatricum Chemicum Britannicum, written in 1652, Ashmole, in his prologue, declared that the Earl of Norfolk had been cured of leprosy by a brother R.C., and Queen Elizabeth had been twice saved from smallpox by another. He was a saint to astrologers, protecting them from Cromwell. It's an extraordinary that he had an influence over both Cromwell and King Charles II, who considered Ashmole a favorite. Kittredge writes, quote, We have still further traces of child in 1651. On March 7th, Elias Ashmole makes the following entry in his diary, quote, I went to Maidstone with Dr. Child the physician, end quote, placing Child near the heart of England's alchemical community. But perhaps the most dramatic evidence for Child's interest in the esoteric far beyond the pale of your average Presbyterian is the dedication in the 1651 English translation of the three books of occult philosophy by Agrippa. Here's what it writes. Quote, to my most honorable and no less learned friend, Robert Child, Doctor of Physic, Sir, 
Great men decline, mighty men may fall, but an honest philosopher keeps his station forever. To yourself, therefore, I crave leave to present what I know you are able to protect, not with sword, but by reason. And not that only, but what by your acceptance you are able to give a luster to. I see it's not in vain that you have compassed sea and land, for thereby you have made a proselyte, not another, but of yourself, by being converted from vulgar and irrational incredulities to the rational embracing of the sublime, hermetical, and theomagical truths. You are skilled in the one as if Hermes had been your tutor. Have insight in the other as if Agrippa your master. Many transmarine philosophers, which we only read, you have conversed with. Many countries, rarities, and antiquities, which we've only heard of and admire, you have seen. Nay, you have not only heard of, but seen, not in maps, but in Rome itself, the manners of Rome. There you have seen much ceremony and little religion, and in the wilderness of New England you have seen among some much religion and little ceremony, and amongst others, I mean the natives thereof, neither ceremony nor religion, but what nature dictates to them. In this there is no small variety, and your observation not little. In your passage thither by the sea, you have seen the wonders of God in the deep, and by land you have seen the astonishing works of God in the unaccessible mountains. You have no stone left unturned, that the turning thereof might conduce to the discovery of what was occult and worthy to be known. It's part of my ambition to let the world know that I honor such as yourself and my learned friend and your experienced fellow traveler, Dr. Charlotte, who have, like true philosophers, neglected your worldly advantages to become masters of that which hath now rendered you both truly honorable. If I had as many languages as yourselves, the rhetorical and pathetical expressions thereof would fail to signify my estimation of and affectations towards you both. Now, sir, as in reference to this, my translation, if your judgment shall find a deficiency therein, let your candor make a supply thereof. Let this treatise of occult philosophy coming as a stranger amongst the English be patronized by you, remembering that you yourself was once a stranger in the country of its nativity. This stranger I have dressed in an English garb, but be it not according to the fashion, and therefore ungrateful to any, let your approbation make it the mode. You know strangers most commonly induce a fashion, especially if any once begin to approve of their habit. Your approbation is that which will stand in need of, and which will render me, sir, most obligedly yours, J.F., which stands for James Ferguson. Sidebar for me here, I'm not sure what you make of this, and this was written in very old English-sounding language, so if it kind of went above your head, that's totally fine, but the vibe I'm getting from this is, this is a letter directly from James Ferguson to Robert Child saying and asking him to almost introduce this wisdom because he knows how someone from a new and foreign land can easily make something come into fashion. So let's continue. According to James Ferguson, the early go-to source for most bibliographical questions related to alchemy and Rosicrucianism, J.F. was John French, 1616 to 1657, a physician remembered for his advancement of distillation in chemistry. Tobias Churton and others have argued that James Freak was J.F. Churchton also argues that Robert Child was in a secret society with Samuel Hardlib, Thomas Vaughn, and Elias Ashmole. 
Hartlib was dubbed, quote, hub of the axe tree of knowledge, end quote. The transplant to England from Poland was a friend of the great educator Comenius and of the poet John Milton of Paradise Lost fame. He was probably the best connected intellectual of his day because he exchanged letters with every kind of expert he could find. Hartlib's friends and correspondence amounted to an invisible college, which became one of the principal foundations of the Royal Society, though Hartlib himself was excluded from membership. For his contributions to everything from beekeeping to increasing crop yields and collecting medical cures, rational and irrational, Cromwell awarded Hartlib a pension to live on, but when the royals returned, Hartlib found himself abandoned and he died in poverty. Hartlib spent years discussing a colony of the learned perhaps in Virginia, but none of the interested parties ever committed to such a terrifying journey across the Atlantic and such an uncertain future on the outer edge of the vast unknown continent that would later become the United States of America. When Hartlib met Winthrop, he was impressed by this brilliant young alchemist from America, bearing samples of the richest mineral ore Hartlib had ever seen. But he was one of those who cooled off when the Mohegans got busy. But what of the fourth member of Churchin's alleged Rosicrucian secret society, Thomas Vaughn? On the next episode, we'll be diving into the history of Thomas Vaughn, who was a member of something called the Society of Unknown Philosophers. You'll also learn how he was connected to Arthur Edward Waite, or A.E. Waite, who was a British poet and scholarly mystic. You might recognize the name A.E. Waite, because the writer Wait Tarot is a widely popular tarot deck for tarot card readings. It's also known as the Wait Smith, Rider Wait Smith, or Rider Tarot, and it is based on the instructions of the academic and mystic A.E. Wait, and was illustrated by Pamela Coleman Smith, who were both members of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. The Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn was a secret society devoted to the study and practice of occult hermeticism and metaphysics during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. We will continue to tie together these threads of lost American history in our next episode of American Alchemy, Part 3. Tune in next time to continue the story. Thank you for venturing into the unknown with me. Full details about the selected text are available in the episode description. My selected readings are for the purpose of research and study, entertainment, discussion, and consciousness expansion. The views and opinions expressed in the included readings belong to the original authors or creators and may not necessarily reflect my own. The episode description also contains links that will allow you to join the community on social media, and support the continued production of this podcast. Don't forget to follow the show on your favorite podcast player so you're alerted when new episodes are released. In a wonderland they lie, dreaming as the days go by, dreaming as the summers die, ever drifting down the stream, lingering in the golden gleam, Life, what is it but a dream? Night-night, bitch.